The word for the day, you've heard it already. Uh, Pastor Rebecca shared it with us wonderfully in the children's time. Sometimes God does new things. Sometimes God does new things in the world. Our uncommon saint for the day, the last in our series here, is Emily Towns down there in the bottom left corner. She's a pastor, preacher, professor, and also still alive. I wanted at least one of our saints in this series to still be alive, and uh, Dr. Towns is alive and well as the Dean of Vanderbilt Divinity, uh, Vanderbilt University Divinity School. Now, I want to start out by telling you about a moment that a friend of mine witnessed at Vanderbilt to give you just a picture of who Dr. Towns is. Imagine it's the day of Dr. Towns' installation as the Dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School. Those of you that have been around colleges or universities know that this kind of thing, the installation of a dean, is a pretty formal affair, right? All the faculty are there wearing their academic regalia. They have those big, bright, puffy robes that have the thick doctoral stripes down the arms. They have on their hats of all different shapes and sizes. I never could figure out why they were different shaped hats, but I know it's very important to them. They have on their big hoods those long stoles that go down their back that have like a color coding for the degree that they earned. Uh, it's a big, it's a formal thing, it's fancy, all the fanciness that a university can produce. Someone was carrying a gonfalon, I have no doubt. If you don't know what a gonfalon is, that's your trivia word for the day, Google it. Okay. Now, to understand this story, you need to know that in the 1960s, a famous civil rights activist named James Lawson transferred as a student to Vanderbilt University. He did so in part because of his work with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, and he was a key part of the sit-ins that, that were happening there trying to integrate the businesses in Nashville. Now, Vanderbilt was very unhappy with his activism at the time, and they kicked him out of the school. And when they kicked James Lawson out in protest, something like half the faculty left. It was a huge deal for Vanderbilt, a big turning point in their, in their university history. And in the aftermath, Vanderbilt became a place willing to work for justice and inclusion for all, so much so that the Divinity School now calls itself the School of the Prophets, like modern-day prophets. So in the years since James Lawson, he has continued to be a mentor and a light to many people at Vanderbilt. Okay, so it's the day of Emily Towns' installation in 2013. James Lawson, who no longer lives in Nashville, drove into town for the celebration. He didn't tell anyone he was coming. He slipped into the chapel. He took a seat toward the back. And Dr. Towns, as she processed in amid all the faculty, all the regalia, all the fancy, she saw him and she got really excited and she waved. And then she walked about 10 steps past him, turned around in the middle of the procession and made everybody stop so she could go back and offer James Lawson her arm and escort him to the front. And then she gave him her seat. This entire ceremony was about her. The whole reason they were there was her, and she gave up her seat on the stage to him. Lawson didn't have an active part in the service at all, but she wanted him to have the seat of honor. Now, Emily Towns describes herself as a womanist theologian, and this was womanist theology in action. She was willing to stop the parade in order to make space to honor one who had gone before her. And the truth is, without James Lawson, 
uh, Emily Towns does not become later dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School. She never said a word about him in the whole service. She didn't need to. Her willingness to disrupt the entire proceeding in order to gather him in and place him in the seat of honor, that was all she needed to say. Then after the worship service and ceremony, Dean Towns hired a full band and they had a dance. <laughs> I can't tell you how unusual this is at a seminary. My friend told me that it was professors and students, staff and friends, queer and straight, young and old, people of all colors out there on the dance floor dancing their hearts out, celebrating the goodness of God together. Sometimes God does new things, things that are unexpected to us, things that are unusual to us, things that shake us out of our routine, things that bring the Holy Spirit to us in fresh, exciting, and powerful ways. And our scripture today is a reminder of this. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. And in order to hear him well, we need to remember that he's speaking to people who are very far away from home. They're in exile. They're stuck in a foreign land. Stuck because Jerusalem had been conquered by an invading army. And after that, many of the business people and leaders were carted off to live in a foreign capital city. And they didn't get to go home for 70 years. They wanted to go home but they weren't allowed to for 70 years. Isaiah speaks to these people who are in exile, and this is what he says. He says, remember, and he says, forget. Remember and forget. First of all, remember. Remember who God is and remember what God has done. He says, remember the exodus. Remember how God brought the people out of Egypt, how you were saved from the army of Pharaoh. How God did a powerful and a mighty thing in saving people. Remember how good that was. Remember how good God is. But as soon as he says that, he says, forget. He says, do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. What's he talking about? I think he means the situation that took them to exile in the first place. He wants them to forget the terrible circumstances that brought them to this foreign land, how their leadership was corrupt and selfish, how the people didn't listen to the voice of God, how because their own weakness kept them from repelling that invading army. Regarding all the failure and the pain in the past, all the regret they had, the prophet says, do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. Because that story of pain and regret, it doesn't predict the future. He wants them to know God is going to write a new story. And then he gets to the heart of his message and he says, I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The prophet is saying the failure of the past will not limit God. God is about to do something new, something that will change the face of the earth, something that will rewrite the story. And the prophet wants the people to keep their eyes open so they can see it, so they can see it coming. It's a powerful passage of, of hope to a people who are stuck in a bad and dark place. But this is what God does. Just like in that Exodus story, God is about rescuing the lost. God unsticks those who are stuck. God makes a way when there seems to be no way. God breaks through with new and unexpected things, even when we are feeling our most burdened and our most weighed down. God comes in the toughest situations with a new thing. The question is, are we ready to perceive it? God is always ready to do a new thing. 
That's part of what it means for us to call God a redeeming God. The past doesn't limit God. God's ready to write a new story of hope and healing and joy. And that story will be true to who we've always known God to be, and it will feel brand new. Our God never stops being creative and innovative in order to bring us God's God's salvation. God is ready to do a new thing. Now, to me, Emily Towns helps represent God's way of doing what God always does, bringing hope and healing and justice, but in a new and surprising way for today. She's an American Baptist minister and a womanist ethicist. I'll tell you more about womanist in a minute. She's from Durham, North Carolina. Both her parents were actually professors at North Carolina Central University, which is a historically black college or an HBCU. She said that she grew up in the middle of of desegregation, but her parents were homebodies and lived in a pretty self-contained black community in Durham. Her parents were both very religious, but she became disenfranchised with organized religion after various pastors failed to connect justice and spirituality in a way that made sense to her. So in reaction, she began going out to Duke Forest there in Durham to talk to God uh, and to reflect. And she said that growing up, she often felt God was her only constant in a world of turmoil and upheaval. She went to college at University of Chicago, and there she rediscovered her faith. She had a few friends who worked with the local Methodist church's youth group, and she started hanging out with them. It's dangerous to hang out with Methodist youth because uh, she ended up recommitting to her faith. And then her interest in religion just grew and grew. She pursued a major in religious studies. She earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago. She got her master's degree from the Divinity School and then a doctorate of ministry. She started working in an American Baptist church while she was in seminary, and she felt so at home, she decided to be ordained in that denomination. And she continued her scholarly work, earning a PhD in 1989. Then she taught at St. Paul School of Theology, which is a United Methodist school in Kansas City, then went on to Yale Divinity, and then in 2013 became the dean of Vanderbilt Divinity School. She's also served as the president of several professional theological uh, associations. She's just a, a towering leader in the theology world. Now, Emily Towns describes herself as a womanist, ethicist, and theologian. And I'm guessing that the word womanist is new to most of you that are here. It was coined by the author Alice Walker in the early 1980s, and then it was taken up by black women scholars because they felt that the work of white feminists and the work of black male academics, neither one of them completely fit their particular experience. So they started talking about womanist theology as a way to write and talk about God that centers the experiences and the voices of black women. It's a way to remind us all, actually, that whenever we talk about God, we do so filtered through our own experiences. I mean, I preach to you today as a white woman who grew up in Kansas, the daughter of librarians, the granddaughter of wheat farmers, and that shapes how I see and how I understand God. Saying that my understanding of God is shaped by my experience, that doesn't diminish or negate my understanding of God. I'm grateful. I'm so grateful for all the times and all the places that I've experienced God's love in my life and how surely I know Jesus' saving grace. My experience of God is trustworthy and true. And I hope that your experience of God feels that same way. 
But I also know that I don't know everything there is to know about God and about the world. And my experience isn't the only experience in the world. And if I really want to know what God is up to in the world, if I want to know it in a full and robust way, I'm going to listen to voices that are different than my own and their experiences with God. I'm going to read what they write and listen to what they say. Uh, all kinds of people who, who grew up very differently than I did. And where we find similarity, we're going to rejoice. And where we find difference, we're going to learn from each other. Now, for too long, theology, especially in an academic sense, was done by people who were all very similar. The joke is that when you go to seminary, you're assigned to read uh, a whole bunch of people who are German, male, and, well, dead. That's how you learn theology. And all those guys were wise, they were wise, and they were wonderful, they wrote well, and they helped us understand so much about the Bible and who God is, but their perspective is not neutral. They read the Bible through their understanding of the world, which included being European, white, male, and middle or upper class. I'm not saying they're wrong. They weren't wrong. What I'm saying is they didn't have the whole story. And if we want to read the Bible well, if we want to see how God is at work in the world today, we're going to pay attention to the faith and thought of people who come from all kinds of backgrounds, a variety of experiences, a variety of places. For example, in Genesis, there's this story of Hagar, an Egyptian woman who was a slave of Abraham and by whom Abraham had a child because his wife Sarah could not conceive. Now in the story, there's a lot of conflict between Hagar and Sarah, and eventually Hagar and her child are kicked out of the family. They're kicked out of the camp. They're banished from Abraham's household into the wilderness, and God acts to save them. Now there's a lot of things to pay attention to in that story of Hagar, but it's womenist theologians like Emily Towns who ask first, their first question is, how does the experience of black women help us understand this story and the experience of Hagar? What is it that black women think about these things? They ask that question, they write about it, and they help us see the story and the world from a different perspective. Now, in an interview that I listened to this week with Dr. Towns, she put it like this. She said, to learn about the Bible well, you don't just take your own opinion and fit the scripture into it. You got that? You don't just take your own opinion and put the, fit the scripture into it. That's not a healthy way to read the Bible. She said, instead what you do is you listen to a whole lot of people, including people who know more about the Bible than you do, biblical scholars. I mean, that's what I do each and every week. And then she said, you listen to a variety of voices, from more conservative thought to more radical thought, and you take all that together and you sit and you think, what is my thought in this? What is my experience? What is the passage trying to say to me? So reading people like Emily Towns and other faithful people with different perspectives that's all part of our process of taking the Bible seriously and letting it shape our lives. The prophet Isaiah reminds us that God is always able and willing to do a new thing in the world. For instance, one thing that God has done lately for us here at St. Paul's that's been new and been wonderful is in bringing a guy who grew up in South Congo to be one of our pastors. That's Pastor Bellarmi, right? Okay. <laughs> Now, in terms of how he grew up and how I grew up, there are a lot of differences between us, right? Yes. Uh, but our congregation is so much better off because we've had his voice from the pulpit and my voice from the pulpit in these last 18 months. 
Pastor Bellarmi and I, we testify to the same God. We try to tell you about the same unconditional love of, D- of Jesus. And we do it in a way that sounds different sometimes. In a way from him, perhaps, that feels new to us. And all of that helps us grow in our faith and helps us experience God. Last weekend, I had another experience of God doing a new thing that was fresh and new and impactful for my faith. I went to the celebration of our new bishop, David Wilson, in Topeka, Kansas. Now, Bishop Wilson is the first Native American person to be elected to the Episcopacy in the United Methodist Church, and he was anywhere in the whole church. He was celebrated on Saturday, not yesterday, but the week before, in a worship service, but the night before that, on Friday night, there was a dinner for his family and his friends and special guests, conference staff, and then a few random people like me and Matt got to go to dinner too. Well, the meal, it was a catered buffet, but the organizers had recruited a couple of local clergy kids to help with the hospitality. You know, just walk around and serve drinks to people and things like that. John and Anne and Hannah are all between 10 and 15 years old, and they did a really lovely job of serving that night. After we ate, there were introductions and gifts were given to Bishop Wilson by various people, which was wonderful. And then Bishop Wilson got up to share remarks, and he had a really long list of people that he wanted to thank. And the first people he thanked were John and Anne and Hannah, the kids. He thanked the kids first. He thanked the kids first. And I sat there so surprised that that's how he started. And then I thought, Amy, why are you surprised? This is so biblical. (laughs) Jesus said the first will be last and the last will be first. And Bishop Wilson took the ones who would usually be noticed last and he thanked them first. It was such a small act, but it felt really holy to me. And it really inspired me. And I suspect it came from all the times in his life that Bishop Wilson himself has been noticed and mentioned last. His experience makes a difference in how he leads and I see God in watching him lead. Now my challenge to you this week is to be on the lookout for places that God is doing a new thing. Keep your eyes and your ears open, and especially when you encounter voices that are different from your own, ask yourself, what is it that I can learn from this person? What can I see through their eyes that's gonna help me understand the world better? Ask yourself, what might God be saying to me through them that's gonna help me grow in my faith? God is always bringing new people, new perspectives, new experiences to us to help us see and grow and love God more faithfully. May we celebrate the things that God is doing all around us. Amen.